your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 37 this morning. And uh, I just, uh, I I don't really, I uh, I was just thankful even as we worshiped the Lord uh, of this morning, particularly uh, for our worship team and just seeing how God uses different gifted individuals and just uh, really encouraged to see some of our, our, you know, really our recent new members serving in our worship ministry. Uh, just praise God for how he gifts us and equips us and, and uh, skills us so in different ways that we can serve one another in the body of Christ. So thankful for that. But uh, thankful for his word, most importantly, because it reveals to us not only Christ, but it reveals to us who he is. It reveals to us uh, God's will, God's plan for our lives and how we can glor- live in a way that glorifies and honors him as he deserves. Isaiah is where we've been. Uh, we will end this year with our, a series in Isaiah. And uh, we've been looking particularly in chapters 36 and 37 about the events surrounding Assyria and King Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. We've already kind of looked at two parts so far. In the first two parts in 36 and a little into 37, we looked at uh, the, the verses that challenged us, in whom we do we place our trust? In whom do we trust? And I think as Christians, we know, we know the right answer, the biblical answer is that our trust is in God. But we all know that in life, there are times where it, the circumstances of life make it difficult. They, we are weak in our flesh. And that sometimes we do not trust God as we ought. And hopefully the scriptures have been encouraging you in this. And this morning we continue. We we'll look at this third and final uh, event, uh, passage that surrounds the events of Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem. Application-wise, of course, that we've been focusing that the siege of Jerusalem is really just a, can be uh, applied to, or the thoughts can apply to when we are when we go through difficulties, trials, and uh, when we're surrounded by enemies, or when uh, the world is falling apart, or uh, to us. Uh, that we can always put our trust in God. God always wants us to trust in Him with everything that goes on in our lives. And so that's been our focus this morning. Before as we open up the Word one more time, uh, please will you join with me in prayer. Lord, as we open Your Word now, we thank You for Your Word and ask that Your Spirit would lead us and fill us, guide us into Your truths, teach us that which You will wish for us to learn, encourage Your people, Father, strengthen us in our faith in You, Lord, help us to get a greater glimpse of the kind of God that you are, that you would renew and restore, renew in us a clearer and, and fresh picture of who you are, that you are the one true and living God, that there is no other gods but you. Father, encourage your saints now. Glorify yourself in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I mentioned it in, I think, in the first, our first, uh, first, uh, first part of this three-part ser- sermon about Sennacherib's annals. And uh, when much of we, we talk about much of what we know of the Assyrian king is recorded for us in something called uh, Sennacherib's annals. Sennacherib's annals are actually recorded for us on something like this. It is a, a six-sided hexagonal a prism. It's a clay prism uh, that has uh, Assyrian cuneiform written on it. And this is just kind of one of the pictures that uh, I kind of got, got out of my Bible software. So I thought I'd show it to you guys just so that you kind of know that these exist. If you ever go to uh, London or Chicago or uh, Jerusalem, you can go to the respective museums and you'll find one of these, uh, one of these three, there's only three existing in the world now. And these, uh, these prisms and you can actually see it and I don't think they're too high I think like 38 centimeters or so uh, so they're kind of small uh, they're probably not like a big exhibit but they're probably just in a little case somewhere and you can find wow you know that is a historical record of a person that we read about in the Bible uh, named Sennacherib who was the king of Assyria around uh, seven, starting with 701 BC uh, for about 20 years or so well it's going to it has six sides, and on the six sides are basically recorded eight different campaigns, uh, military campaigns that Sennacherib takes over his twenty-year uh, reign. And I want, and one of them, of course, in this, his third campaign is the campaign that involves kind of our historical date or historical text when he attacks uh, Judah and, well, really the whole area, land of Palestine. Now, I want to read for you the very first kind of the first 
uh, column, the very introduction of Sennacherib. And this is kind of his own words about who he is. Okay, there's a description of Sennacherib. Uh, <clears throat> just so you kind of get the sense of the kind of leader that existed in that day. Uh, <clears throat> the Sennacherib's annals read, Sennacherib, the great king, the mighty king, king of the world, king of Assyria, king of the four quarters, the wise shepherd, favorite of the great gods, guardian of right, lover of justice, who lends support, who comes to the aid of the, dest- of the destitute, who performs pious acts, perfect hero, mighty man, first among all princes. You get the idea. This guy's really humble. The powerful one who consumes the insubmissive, who strikes the wicked with the thunderbolt, the god Ashur, the great mountain, and unrivaled kinship has entrusted to me. And above all those who dwell in palaces, who has made powerful my weapons. From the upper sea of the setting sun to the lower sea of the rising sun, he has brought the black-headed people in submission at my feet. And mighty kings feared my warfare, leaving their homes and flying alone like the Sidonu, the bird of the cave, to some inaccessible place. And that's, that's the, the whole extent of Sennacherib's um, introduction of himself. You can see that Sennacherib was, well, you know, like, well, you know, you kind of meet these leaders of great nations today. They're, you know, you kind of got to think a little bit about that you're kind of, you know, a little special, right? I mean, to actually want to be, you know, the leader of the empires, of the, one of the mightiest empires of the world. And he's definitely that. But the thing is about Sennacherib, and, and much like many, uh, some, many leaders, that they attribute their power to themselves. They attribute the power. It's his might. He, he thinks about how he great he is, what a wonderful king he is. And when he does refer to the gods, he t- refers to the god Ashur here, the Assyrian god. He believes that it's God, that the Assyrian god showed favor upon him and made him as mighty as he is. He boasts here of his military might. He boasts that he was so mighty that all the kings, all those who dwelled in palaces, were afraid of him. And that they would flee when he approaches. And we actually find that to be true. Uh, one, uh, one Babylonian king, we've actually uh, learned about him a little while back, um, Merodach Baladan. We'll see that next in the next section. Actually, when... Sennacherib brought his armies to, headed towards Babylon and Chaldea. Uh, Merodach Baladan just fled. He just took off. He just, I'm not going to fight this guy. So it was a frightening thing to have the Assyrian king and his army kind of approaching your doorsteps. So you can understand then for Hezekiah and the little tiny nation of Judah to have King Sennacherib along with his mighty army marching down all throughout Judah marching towards Jerusalem that Hezekiah and many of the people in Judah and Jerusalem would have understandably been afraid, right? If you had a huge army outside your doors uh, with weapons, uh, I think we'd be a little afraid too. Now, how would this king, King Hezekiah, resist this great, mighty king of the world? Well, we'll see today how he does that. We'll see that how Hezekiah responds to this threat, to this cause of fear for him and for his people. He responds, and how he responds, is primarily related to what he believes, or really who is his God. What he believes about his God, who is his God. And, this, and by application for us today, I hope we will learn that how we respond to trials and difficulties, dangers, threats, trials in our life will be determined to the great extent by who is our God, that who is your God, and what you believe about your God. Who is the true, living, sovereign God, not only in the universe, but in my life and yours? Now, if we remember as Christians that the God of the Bible, the one in whom we trust, he is the only true living sovereign God of the universe, then that should that will impact how we respond when in circumstances and trials and threats that causes fear. It should cause us to find courage and strength in the face of them. As we look at our passage then this morning, we're going to continue the story. I could uh, define or break down the passage into four scenes of God's defeat of Assyria. That's essentially what we're seeing here. God defeats Assyria, how he delivers Hezekiah from the threat of Sennacherib in Assyria in four scenes. But I've been 
uh, but I wanted to give you a little more of a, an applicational outline. Uh, sometimes it's called a homiletical outline. And so I'm going to set it for us in four questions, four rhetorical questions that ultimately when we ask them in the midst of trials and threats that remind us that the Lord alone is God. There's no other being, a human being on this earth. There's no other gods in this world that is God, that is the one true living sovereign God, except the Lord himself. And that's going to be the point of this text. That's going to where we head. And these four questions will lead us in that way. So let's take a look then at question number one. The first question that can draw, we can draw from verses 5 to 13 is this. Whose word will you trust? We've been asking, in whom do you trust the last two weeks? And when the answer is, we trust in God. If we trust in God, then we should trust in his word. But oftentimes, as we're going to see, when it comes to trials and situations, we know what God says. But sometimes we don't trust what his word says. We don't believe it. Instead, we often will believe what we think, our own words, our own wisdom, our own abilities. We might believe what other humans say, other people say. And that causes this conflict in our lives that makes it sometimes difficult to walk in faith and trust in the Lord. Because we're torn between two words, God's word and man's words. The question is for us and for Hezekiah, whose word will we trust? In verses 1 to 4, Hezekiah had sought out Isaiah and asked him to pray for their deliverance from Sennacherib. <coughs> and you can imagine uh, that Isaiah did this. But uh, what is significant here in these nine verses is that we see that Hezekiah receives two messages, two contrasting messages, one from God and one from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Let's take a look at verse 5 to 7 where we see that Hezekiah's reception of the word of God. He receives the word of God. Verse 5 to 7 of Isaiah 37. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Syria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. God here speaks to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, and the Lord encourages him. He knows, and it's normal, natural emotions. The fear as an emotion is a normal, natural thing, and it's healthy. God gives us a sense of fear so that we would learn to trust in him, really, to stay alive. But he tells him to know, to not be afraid, to not remain in fear because of what the Rapshika said. Remember what the Rapshika said? The Rapshika, on behalf of Sinagrib, had tried to demoralize Hezekiah and Judah by reminding them that no help is coming. Egypt has been defeated. God is unable to help you. Judah is too weak to fight off. You're too weak to fight off Assyria. And what's more, God is actually against you. So all those words, those half-truths and really lies that the Rapshika was saying on behalf of Hezekiah cause would have been a reason for fear among Hezekiah and his people. So God tells him to not be afraid of those words because of those words. And God, to encourage him to not be afraid, gives him a promise. What do we see? The promise that he gives him. He tells him that Sennacherib, what's going to, exactly what's going to happen, Sennacherib's going to hear a rumor. Rumor, a rumor that is something that's not true. But somehow this rumor will cause him to stop his military campaign throughout Judah and eventually return back to his own land, that is Assyria. And there, Sennacherib will be, will fall by the sword. He'll be killed by the sword. That's what God says of Sennacherib, this mighty king, the great king, the king of the four corners of the world. This is what's going to happen to him. And this is what God says is going to happen to him. The question now for Hezekiah is, would he believe it? Right? God speaks to us all the time, clearly in his word. But the real issue for us when we go through trials is, will we believe God's word? And remember now, this is not the first time this kind of situation has happened. Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, when he was under the threat of the Aram-Israel alliance, of Northern Kingdom alliance, he also received a word from Isaiah, from God. And God told him, you don't have to be afraid. In fact, what the Aram-Israel alliance is going to fail. But Ahaz didn't trust God's word. He didn't believe God's word. And instead, he put his faith in Assyria. And that began this whole messy cycle of Assyria. 
Hezekiah, will he be like his father? Or will he trust the Lord? This leads us to the second message that Hezekiah receives. Not only does he receive the word of God, but he receives the word of man in verse 8 through 13. Then Rapshakeh returned. And so <clears throat> we see the Rapshakeh returns, that is, returns back to Sennacherib, and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. When he heard them say concerning Terheka, king of Cush, he has come out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying. Now, in these two verses summarize for us the occasion for why uh, Sennacherib gives another word to the king of Syria. He just sent the Rapshika there with this, essentially, we're going to see this identical message already. But he'll, he's going to send a second message to him. You see, because what God had promised to Hezekiah in verse 7 actually had came to pass. The king of, king of Assyria, Sennacherib, had heard a rumor, a rumor that Terheka, king of Cush, that's Ethiopia, in Ethiopia in that day really was the dominant power in that it controlled Egypt too. The king of Ethiopia was also the king of Egypt. And now even though Sennacherib had defeated uh, the army of the Egyptian army in the Philistine, at least according to Sennacherib's annals, just a few years earlier, we see that this, this rumor that Terheka was coming out again to uh, fight against Sennacherib caused him to basically withdraw his siege. Remember where he was sieging last year? He had been sieging Lachish, which is about 40 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Um, so you're southwest of Jerusalem, which is on the way to Egypt. He has an army in heading around Jerusalem. He has an army in Lachish. Uh, his, he's divided. And now he's about to have a second kind of front upon his battle. That's not, you know, if you, at least you're playing Risk or whatever, you know, you play those battle games. You want to mash your forces. If you're going to have, you don't want to fight a battle on two sides, you know, uh, with your army divided. And so he apparently withdraws from Lachish, as we see. He leaves Lachish and now he's in Libna. And scholars are disagreed about where Libna is. It is a Judean town. It's somewhere in Judah. Likely it's between Jerusalem, between Lachish and Jerusalem. So it's in between. So what's, which would make a lot of sense is that Sennacherib, knowing that the battle is going to come on two fronts, uh, could potentially come on from two fronts, he withdraws arms and unifies it near Jerusalem. He wants to take out Jerusalem maybe first, so then he can uh, handle uh, Terheka when they, uh, when they amass with their forces. So he's coming back. He's getting to, towards Jerusalem. His intention is to go to uh, to. Uh, to take out Hezekiah. But that's when, and so in order to do this, he, he wants to, well, before even having to raise a, to fire an arrow or, or create any siege towers, he wants to just see if he can get them to surrender, to just defeat them uh, by the war of words. And so he sends a second message to Hezekiah in verse 10 to 13. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah. So here's the message. And this is an orally delivered message with, that's also uh, given in written form. And this is what he says to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Do the gods of those nations which my fathers have destroyed deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Rezif and sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, and Hena and Iva. We've already mentioned that these words are similar, almost identical, kind of similar threats to the Rapshika's word in chapter 36, 18 and 20. This time, though, instead of challenging trust in Hezekiah, he directly challenges Hezekiah and the people of God, their trust in God himself. Look at his words in verse 10. He says, you basically says, don't let your God deceive you. Don't trust your God. This, I mean, this sounds like, you know, just goes back to me, to Satan in the Garden of Eden, right? When he goes to, to Eve and he tells her, did God really say that? You know, he's probably, he's hiding things from you. He's actually, he's against you. He wants them to know that your, he, that your God is not someone whom you can trust his words. He reminds, uh, Hezekiah, or Sennacha reminds Hezekiah that you remember now, none of the gods of the nations have been able to deliver them from, my, from the Assyrian kings of old. 
And then in a threat directly to Hezekiah, verse 13, he says, where are the kings of, you know, these various places, cities and nations that have been defeated? Well, they're either dead or they've been deported. And the same thing will happen to you, Hezekiah, if you do not surrender now and put your trust in me. So with this second message, Hezekiah now faces a choice to trust either the word of God or the word of Sennacherib, the word of men. Often in the face of threats and dangers, we too find ourselves in the similar choices, don't we? Will I trust the word of God? Will I trust the word of men? And while we may fear man, we know that God's word is the one that is ultimately be trusted. We know this as a matter of head knowledge. But in the midst of trials, when the fears arise, when the emotions, the worry, and the anxiety come up, our flesh in its weakness is tempted to choose to put our trust in man instead of God. But God alone is the true and living God. And because he's the true and living God, he always speaks that which is true. You can always count and trust in his word. And may this question be in yours whenever you are facing threats and dangers in your life. This leads us into our second question when you face dangers and threats as we continue our story. It's also helpful for us to ask, who alone is the living God? That is, who alone is the true living God? The implication that there are, the God, your God's either dead or he's alive. A dead God doesn't do anything. He's dead. But a living God is at work. He's doing stuff. He's at, he's at, he's controlling the various uh, events of this world and he's controlling the events of your life. So Hezekiah, <coughs> excuse me. We, uh, <clears throat> we see here the response of the king. Hezekiah responds to the letter from Sennacherib with faith and prayer to the Lord. We read in verse 14 and 15 this. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, and this is just a great example, just an illustration of how we should respond when we face difficulties and trials, burdens. We should figuratively bring our burdens to the Lord and cast it before him and pray to the Lord with regards to these burdens. Hezekiah here shows great faith in God and that he brings what caused him fear, he brings to the Lord. What caused you fear? Bring it to the Lord. How does he bring it to the Lord? We pick it, we pick it up in 16 to 20. This is his prayer, his beautiful prayer. O Lord of hosts, that's we can just simply Almighty God is the idea. The God of Israel, who's enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, our God. The main theme of Hezekiah's prayer is a recognition that you, Lord, alone are God. That you, God, are the only God. You're the only living God, the true God. We see it in verse 16 when he says, you are the God, you alone. And what's more, he's not just the God of little nation of Judah, but he's the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 17 calls him the living God as opposed to the dead God. Verse 18 and 19 <coughs> are acknowledgement that the gods of the nations were helpless because they, were, they weren't real. They were dead gods. They were idols. They were just the creations of man. But then verse 20, he calls upon God to deliver Judah from Sennacherib so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know what? May know that you alone, Lord, are God. That he is the only God, the God of the Bible, that, is, that has, he has revealed himself to us here is God, not all the other 
so-called gods of the world that have been defeated, the gods of the nations. And so he calls on God to deliver Judah for his sake. Many times when we face threats, we end up becoming (laughs) sort of like atheists or deists at best. We forget that there's a God that is living. We act as if he's not alive and he's not at work in our world. We forget that we can go to him with our, our needs and bring before him Christ and trust that he's at work in our life, even if we don't see it. For he tells us in his word that he's at work. He's a living God. He's not a fake God or an absent God. He's a God who's true. He's at work in the universe. He holds all things together. And he's at work in each and every one of our lives. We cast, we can cast all our cares upon him because why? Because you matter to him. You matter to him. He cares for you. Now, related to this fact, when we ask ourselves who alone is the living God, leads us to our third question, a related question. Who alone is sovereign? Who alone is the sovereign God? The one is in complete, complete authority over the world. And we see here the third scene of the response of God, God's response to Hezekiah's prayer. God, what is an encouragement here that God responds to Hezekiah's prayer. And, and, Yes, it's not that our prayers uh, control God, but God in his, uh, in his grace deems to use our prayers for his glory. That he delights in seeing us turn to him in prayer and, that he resp- and therefore responding to that prayer to accomplish his purposes according to his sovereign will. That's what he does here. God answers. First, there's a two-part answer that he gives. First, he primarily answers... Uh, he primarily addresses Sennacherib. The whole answer is to Hezekiah, but his answer is really directed towards Sennacherib. And we see God's word to Sennacherib in verse 21 to 29, where, which we see, which shows us God's sovereignty. Then, 21, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. So God is speaking here. Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, can you imagine, you know, I just want to stop there. It just came to me. You know, you've been praying about that, something for a while. Can you imagine? I mean, you're never going to hear a verse, a word from God. But this would be consistent. Because, because you have prayed to me about this, what you've been praying for. And God just recognizing that you pray to me, him about that. He will give you his word as an answer. Verse 22. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him, that is Sennacherib. She, referring to the, the nation of Assyria, has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have, and now he kind of, he, he, in verse 23, he turns to address Sennacherib. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom, whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. Through your servants you have reproached the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon. And I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I will go to its highest peak, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank waters, and with the sole of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Sennacherib, as you can see here, is rebuked by God for, first of all, having reproached and blasphemed God. He's reproached and blasphemed God by his words. He's basically declared God a deceiver, a liar. It's just, and you can imagine Snocker is being controlled by Satan here. So it's like Satan calling God the deceiver, you know. And that's, 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 the, that's the grace. It's blasphemy. But not only is he repro- uh, reproved by God for his blasphemy, but he's also rebuked for his pride. We see that in verse uh, 20, uh, 24. And 25, right? You see, you see verse 23 too. He's hardly lifted up his eyes. He's been prideful, arrogant. He's actually, in verse 24, 25, he's, he's recounting Sennacherib's words. And it's kind of reads just like his description in uh, Sennacherib's annals, right? He says, I did it. I'm, you know, I'm my many chariots. I came up here. I cut down. I will go up. I dug walls. And then look at it. The sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. That's just great figurative speech, right? Like, man, that guy, 
He's got mighty feet or something. Uh, he thinks his foot is mighty. But, you know, the, the, really what he's describing here is that he's boasting of his might, his military success, his future endeavors, his resourcefulness, and his vast reach all the way to the rivers of Egypt. But everything is my or I. He doesn't even talk about his God, Ashur. And so God reproves him in the following verses. See, Sennacherib thinks that he is sovereign. And when you're a, and, and it's a danger for all any who are position of leadership, especially when you're leaders of mighty nations, uh, and it'll be a danger for our, our president, our president-elect Trump, even. And when he gets to that place, and you have the power of, of the button, you know, at your disposal, it can get to you. That can be full of pride. But God will humble those who are proud, and He humbles Tanakhrib. He says in verse twenty-six. Listen to his response. It's just, it's, it's almost kind of funny, but. He says to him, have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field, as the green herb, as green grass on the house is scorched before it's grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in. And you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me, and because your arrogance has come to my ears, therefore I will put my hook into your nose, and my bridle into your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Beautiful words. God just kind of hold up. Did you not hear? I'm the one who did everything in your life. I'm the sovereign God. I am the one who is behind everything that you've done. We know this in the Bible that God is sovereign, that he uses the good and the evil for his purposes. And he used Sennacherib to turn fortified cities into ruining heaps. And though Sennacherib thought it was all about him, he God reminds him, no, it was I who was empowered you to do that. I was I who allowed you to have the strength to do that, to have success in that endeavor. And so, but Sennacherib had been arrogant <clears throat> and he has raged against God. And so God then tells him that this is what's going to happen to him. Just as Assyria had done to the nations that they had defeated, so God would do to Sennacherib. He would put a he would put a hook in their nose and a bridle on his lips. And it's just, you can get a picture here. To us, it's like, oh, he's treating him like an animal, right? Like a, maybe a hook and nose and a bridle. But sadly, we have some historical records that describe that this is actually how the Assyrians treated their human slaves, the people that they defeated. They would put a hook in their nose and bridles in their mouth and then lead them along like prisoners as they are taken to uh, foreign lands. And even, we kind of know the, the whole idea in, in the Old Testament, uh, there would be pictures of nose and, uh, rings and noses. Well, that would be a sign of, of slaves. Someone who would be, someone you could just attach a chain to and, and lead along as property, like your donkey. God says, that's what I'm going to do to you, Sinagra, because you have raised yourself, you're raged against me. Your arrogance has come up to me. God knows what he's done. God knows his heart, and he's going to turn him back the way he had come all the way back to Assyria. So God's word to Hezekiah regarding Sennacherib. He tells him, this, this is what he's, actually this is what he says to Sennacherib. Not only do we see then that God corrects Sennacherib over who was actually sovereign. It's not Sennacherib, it's God. But we see then God gives a word to Hezekiah to teach him this very same point. Verse 30 through 32, then this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same. In the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We see that in this first part of his word to Hezekiah, God gives him a sign. Now, if you remember our story throughout Isaiah, particularly in the days of Ahaz, this is just a constant symbolic going, uh, a, sh- a shadow back to what took place with Ahaz. God offered him a sign too. Remember the sign of the virgin who would give birth 
to a son. But here, God gives Hezekiah another sign, a sign that would confirm for Hezekiah and the people of Judah that when all this, what he promises takes place, when Sennacherib leaves and heads back without ever stepping foot in Jerusalem, that they'll know that it was God who did it. The sign here is that for the next two years, the people of Jerusalem would basically eat off the land. They wouldn't be able to harvest. They wouldn't be able to sow. They wouldn't be able to reap, uh, kind of do any agriculture because it's probably been completely destroyed uh, and their farmers are maybe scattered. But they would simply live off whatever the land produced. In In essence, they had to live off what God would cause the land to produce for them, that they would trust in God to provide. And then in that third year, they would then begin to sow, reap, plant, and then they would receive fruits from the harvest. And that, in itself, was a picture to the Israelites of what would happen to them. That they would be a surviving remnant of the house of Judah that would, like that harvest in that third year, take root downward and bear fruit upward. They would, they would once again grow. They would once again thrive. They would survive you can cut down plants. You know, you ever cut down plants? I have a lot of plants in the backyard. I just cut them down. And you know what? Because I'd leave the roots there. Those roots just go down. And then up comes the fruit. And sometimes you might not see it. But they are there. And God is causing this remnant. He's promised the remnant that will survive. He tells them that you will survive Sennacherib and the mighty Assyrian army. And he gives them the sign. And what's more... He concludes it in verse 32 with the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That is, the passion, the fervor of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. That God is passionate about doing this. He will make sure that he accomplishes this for the people of Judah. You know, when we talk about passion, you know, we, we understand human passion. Sometimes you need to do, want to do things, you want to be passionate about it. Right around January, around January 1st, a lot of us get passionate about getting healthy, losing weight, right? And we say, oh, I'm going to, every day, I'm going to exercise and run 10 miles every day. I'm that one day, two days, three days. Uh, you know, it's good to rest every uh, fourth day or so. But by one week, it's like, uh, maybe next year, <laughs> right? Our passion and fervor as human beings, it drives us to do things. Yes, right? We understand how that works. But man's passions rises and falls, doesn't it? Rises and falls. And you hope your passion's constant. But God's passion is not like that. God's fervor does not change because God does not change. His zeal is constant. His fervor is always there. And he is, says he is passionate. And he is passionate about what? He's passionate about his glory, but he's also passionate and fer- has fervor for his people, for those whom he loves. He's passionate about the people of God. He's passionate for Jerusalem, for Israel. He's passionate for the church, for you believers in Christ. And you can count on that passion to cause him to respond, to fulfill his promise to you, to look out for you, because he's the sovereign Lord. That passion leads, we continue in verse 33 and 35. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the, kings of, the king of Assyria. He will not come to the city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return. He will not come to the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake, for my servant David's sake. God here explicitly promises that the Assyrian king, King Sennacherib, even though he's been able to send messengers, Rapshika with his army, he's been able to send the second delegation, and he's, it seems like he's heading to Jerusalem. But the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, will never step foot near Jerusalem. He will not come to this city, says God. <clears throat> he won't shoot an arrow there. He will not be able to lay, bring a shield there. He's not going to build up a siege ramp to go over the walls of that city. In fact, God said he's going to go right back the way he came. He's going to go back to his own city, to Nineveh of Assyria. And the reason why this is going to happen, verse 35, because God, our sovereign God, himself will defend the city to save it. His zeal will accomplish this. He will do it for his own sake. He will do it for his servant David, for the promise that he made to King David and his seed. So this is the sovereignty of God at work, brothers and sisters. 
Sennacherib has the mightier army. He has momentum on his side. He has morale on his side. But Jerusalem, Hezekiah, and Judah have the Lord God on their side. And that is enough. The sovereign Lord can cause the mighty to flee and the meek to stand. And that is our God. Who is our sovereign God? Our God, the Lord. When you go through trials that threaten you, a loss, difficult people, uh, financial circumstances that are unstable, jobs unstable, illness, disease. The human response is to fear and to fret, to worry, to be anxious. But God has an answer for us from his word. You do not have to remain afraid. Continue being afraid. When you remember who is your sovereign God, who is in control of your life, in control of the loss, in control of the people, in control of your circumstances, in control of your physical bodies and ailments. God is in control of all. He's sovereign. Lastly, our passage leads us to one final question we can ask in the face of danger and threat. It's related to the first point. Whose word do we trust? And that is, who keeps his word? The one you want to trust is the one who can keep his word. <coughs> we see here in verse 36 and 38, the short little scene of the defeat of Assyria. We read in verse 36, Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of those, these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Honestly, I tell you, uh, if this is a movie, you know, this, is, this isn't bad storytelling. This is bad storytelling. You have all this development to this great, you know, battle scene, you know. You expect Sennacherib's marching on to uh, Jerusalem with his army. He's going to wipe out Hezekiah. And then in three verses, oh, God defeated him and he went back home and died. Uh, oh, hold up. <laughs> you know, give, give us action. Where's the Lord of the Rings battles, you know? Where's that going to darkness and light? That's what happens when it comes to man trying to describe the battles of God. But the battles of God are just like this. To God, Assyria is just a man. And God sends out the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord wipes out 185,000. That's it. Sinaku goes home and gets killed. That is our sovereign God. This is how he works. And it's, it's, just, it's the brevity he just describes really shows the, the, the power and sovereignty of our God. It's amazing how he fulfills his word without really much. It doesn't take much effort by God because God is all powerful. What's really cool here, though, and it just like stands out. It's like, man, this is awesome. This is a great Christmas message. Is that he sends the angel of the Lord to defeat the enemy and deliver his people. Right, the angel of the Lord is a is a term for the pre, is a term that's used throughout the Old Testament of the pre-incarnate Christ. We see it for the first time in Genesis 16 when the the angel of the Lord appears with with some other angels to Abraham. We'll see it throughout uh, throughout the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord acts on behalf of God. He, in fact, he's often referred to as God as well. And when he speaks of accomplishing, he'll say, "I did this," as if he was God. In other passages. So the angel Lord here is the pre-incarnate son of God, Jesus Christ. How fitting it is as we look here and we see how God once in, in, in the past had sent his son to defeat the enemy and to deliver his people. And here we are in December. We're about to celebrate Christmas. And that's what God did when he sent his son. He sent him again to this world And he came to defeat the great enemy of sin, the power of sin in our lives. And he came to deliver us from the greatest, the threat of sin. And that's why we worship Christ. And that's our message that we tell others about. 
That's what God does. And he's been doing that throughout the Bible. And he continues to do it uh, even today. He's done it with, through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, without, lifting, without Hezekiah, we see, or Judeans lifting a single finger, the Lord simply struck down 185,000 soldiers. And there's a lot of historical records we can, we can do, just talk about. Uh, but for sake of time, I just don't have it. But, you know, Josephus talks about it. Herodotus talks about it. You can kind of look, go Google it, and you'll see that they talk about it. We don't know how the Lord strikes down 185,000. Perhaps he used, if we match it up with the historical records, perhaps he matched, he used disease to wipe out 185,000. But God could have done it anyway. But the point of this passage is that God did it. God destroyed 185,000 of the mightiest army in that world in that day. God was behind it. He had promised the destruction of Assyria and he destroyed Assyria. We've seen it in many of the previous passages that we've looked at in, in Isaiah. It's exactly what God did because God keeps his word. Every little detail. You go back to some of these verses. Just look at the details in which he fulfills it. He fulfilled it to a T. He defeats Assyria in the land of Judah, but then he defeats the Assyrian king in his hometown. He sends him back, and there he's killed. Historically, we know that after this devastating blow, Sennacherib leaves Judah, departs, returns to Nineveh, and never lays another. He has this is his third campaign. He has five other campaigns, none of which were ever where he comes back to Palestine. He never comes back. And we, he, all that we find in the, his, his Sennacherib's annals is that he, he left Hezekiah like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem, implying that he never completed his siege. Of course, he wasn't going to write that, oh, our, our army got you know, completely wiped out uh, when, in, that, in that campaign. But Sennacherib's um, not, not going to write that down. What's ironic is, of course, uh, here, it's significant, kind of subtle, uh, subtle lesson here is that Sennacherib goes home for 20 years, and then one day he's worshiping in, his, in his, uh, one of his gods' houses, and he's assassinated by his sons. And then one of his other sons takes, play, takes over the kingship. You remember Hezekiah, when he was, was threatened, found security where? In the house of his God, the temple. But Sennacherib found no such security in the house of his God. It's a subtle reminder that Sennacherib's God it was not a real God. He's merely a man-made idol of wood and stone. But Hezekiah's God is the God who keeps his word, who is the living and true and sovereign God. And that should be a, a most comforting thought for you and me, brothers and sisters, whenever we face trials and dangers and threats, circumstances beyond our means and abilities. We, when we go through trials, what do we do? We, we ought to go to the Lord in prayer. And God will respond through his word. And we can hear how he wants us to respond as we look to his word. And he'll tell us in his word how we ought to respond. And we find in this word, and we've done it, and many of you have been a Christian for a while, you find responses from God in the hundreds and countless promises that he makes in his word. And you know, he will keep every single one. Whether you go to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, because you need your path to be straight. Whether you go to Romans 8, 28, you know God's going to work out all things for good together for those who love him. You, you, you want to go to uh, uh, Philippians and find where the peace, that surpasses God, the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You want to go to various Psalms. Like the 23rd Psalm, and say, The Lord is my shepherd, he shall not want. I fear no evil, for he is with me. His rod and staff, they comfort me. All these promises and more, you may, you may claim and hold on to because God keeps his word. We can trust in him because he's our God whom we trust. Well, this concludes the record of a serious. Siege of Jerusalem. And I hope through our study of it, we've seen, we've answered the questions, we've asked ourselves the questions, in whom do we trust? Whom do you trust? We trust in God. And may our trust be more than just head knowledge. May it be a heart knowledge. Maybe a response that flows out of our hearts and minds when we face circumstances. Fear is normal. We should fear fear. You want to have fear. But fear that doesn't grip you and lock you in place, but fear that turns, causes you to turn to the one who is the living God, who is the true sovereign God, 
And that is the Lord God alone. May we, in those times of trial, just go back and answer, ask these questions. Whose word will we trust? Who alone is the living God? Who alone is sovereign? And who keeps his word? For Hezekiah and the nation of Judah, their answer is the Lord, their God. That's our answer too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this conclusion to the story of Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem and Hezekiah's response of faith in you. Thank you for reminding us of whom, in whom our trust ought to be in. It ought to be in you. So Lord, we pray for all, for this church as a whole, before all the different brothers and sisters gathered here, that whatever threats, dangers, trials, fears that they may be facing, Lord, that they would turn to you like Hezekiah, that they would remember that you, O oh Lord, are God alone. That we would not listen to the word of men, but we would listen to your word. We remember that you are the living God at work in our lives, sovereign and in control of every detail, every event, big and small, in this universe. And Lord, that we would be reminder that we remember that we remember to you know to trust in your word because you are God who keeps your word. Help us to keep looking to you in prayer and in hearing from your word, studying your word, that you would increase our faith, Lord, in you. Guard us from despair. Guard us from fear that causes us to fall away. Lord, cause us to be people who, though weak, though meek, will find us that we can stand. Because the Lord God, you, are on our side. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you <coughs> this week. As you go forth, you're dismissed. Have a wonderful week.